Hey guys, it's Mandy with Global Hemp Association. I wanted to say thank you so much for joining. I'm excited about the opportunity to build a relationship and connect this supply chain. I mean, after all, that's why we started the association. Our association was built on the foundation of connecting supply chain, building relationships, and helping you grow your business. Anyone from farmers, manufacturers, and distributors, people that are passionate about the supply chain, and those creating products selling into biofuels, plastics, textiles, construction, and building materials. Hello, everyone. Welcome, and thank you very much for chiming in and listening today. I'm really excited about this interview, by the way, Cole. This is kind of a repeat. We've done one of these before, and I'm really excited for updates about where you're at and what's changed. And so, anyways, I'm going to hand it over to you, Cole. I'd love to hear what you're up to, what you've been working on. Yeah, and what's new? Yeah, good morning. Thanks for having me on. Really excited to be here and kind of share what we're doing and some new projects that we're working on. If you don't know about Dominant Distributing or what we do, we provide truly sustainable packaging solutions for a variety of industries. We started primarily in the cannabis and hemp industry and have slowly moved into other industries from food to fashion, even cosmetics, because even packaging needs packaging. So we want to provide those truly sustainable alternatives to the petroleum plastic problem. Okay, so tell me a little bit for those that don't know about about your company, right? Talk to me a little bit. Do you have samples? Can you show what your packaging is, what it looks like? Talk to me a little bit about why it's different. Yeah, definitely. So right behind me, actually, a couple different things here. So we have some our traditional hemp containers. We use different label stocks petroleum plastic free. They're also printed with either water-based or soy-based inks as well too. This way the customer doesn't have to remove the label prior to composting. You can just chuck the whole thing into the compost. Pre-roll tubes as well, different colors, black and white we have options right now. Same thing with the labels. Launched a new 100% hemp paper label with one of our partners. So no trees used in this material whatsoever. Okay. Yep, and we do retail boxes. This is also made out of hemp paper as well. We use glass, steel, bamboo, really anything that is going to be home or backyard compostable or infinitely recyclable like glass and steel. Okay. So so really trying to be that one-stop shop for anybody looking for sustainable solutions. We can do the design work, all the labels, all the print work for you as well. Okay, so you say a few things that I hear often that are being greenwashed all over, right? Sustainability, compostable, right? right? Backyard compostable. Talk to me a little bit about what is sustainability? What does that really mean? Yeah, that unfortunately does get thrown around a lot and misused. Sustainable, really what it means is being able to use something and sustain that use without creating any more detriment or harm to the environment or the resource that you're actually using. So petroleum plastic, for example, is a linear economy. We create it from virgin plastic it used once, maybe a couple times, goes into the landfill. As we're looking at recent reports, only 5% of plastic in the U.S. got recycled back in 2019. So it dropped from 9%. So it's getting worse and worse. And this is because more and more recycling facilities are closing their doors because there's no money in that material that they're recycling. Everybody wants that cheap virgin plastic. So that is part of the problem. Where if you use home compostable or backyard compostable, those words are interchangeable, materials that can be created into compost, which can be used to grow more plants, which then can be turned back into more packaging and composted again, 
and that cycle just continues. So that is a sustainable solution as long as you're not growing specifically for packaging. For example, like growing and monocropping corn to create packaging. That doesn't really work. It causes too many issues, destroys the soil, where if you're using a waste byproduct like hemp biomass, for example, it's a waste, it's going to be burned or composted anyways, then you can turn that into a sustainable packaging solution that then can be composted, turned back into more hemp plants, and that cycle actually continues, and that is a sustainable solution. And you eliminate petroleum plastic all at the same time. Okay, so I heard a comment the other day. I'm a little bit embarrassed of this as to where we really are, but it was very eye-opening for me that somebody said, I don't know what the big deal is with straws, you know, in Utah. What's, who cares? It's not like we're the ones killing the turtles or creating the plastic in the ocean. It was eye-opening to me because of the disconnect about where pollution is, right? Who's really being affected by the plastics problem? What really drove you to do this? Like, what is this, obviously this plastics problem, but how, I guess, let me back up. Not what drove you. How do we connect those? What's the education that needs to happen in those types of comments or situations where we're, we're inland, Utah, Colorado, we're not seeing this mound of ocean, you know, pollution, but how do, how do we connect that, bridge that gap? Yeah, people, I think, are starting to understand that plastic is a problem everywhere. doesn't matter where you live or what part of the world you live in. Um, yes, it's more visible in certain parts of the country or certain parts of the world. You know, here in Colorado and Utah, we have lots of space where you can just bury it and nobody ever sees it. The problem is it's still that plastic. You're still using that plastic, and it still goes out into the environment. If you go up into the mountains... In either Utah or Colorado, you'll see it in the trees, you'll see it on the trails. There was a research done a couple of years ago up in the Rocky Mountains. They were testing the rainwater and they actually found microplastics in the rainwater. And it's not even something they were looking for. So it is literally everywhere. It's in the air we breathe, the water we drink, the food we eat. It's in our blood now, they have found. It's in it's unborn in- fetuses. I mean, it is literally everywhere. Yes. I'd say that's right. And and that's something that comes up in agriculture everywhere, right? Is because it's now everywhere. This is not, this isn't a problem that is distant. And I think that that's where this disconnect is, is like, it's in our food. It's in our bodies. It's in everything we're drinking and eating, especially if we're, you know, importing and exporting cattle back and forth and that are, you know, exposed themselves. And anyways, long story. I went down a little rabbit hole. But it is all connected. Yeah. It is all connected. Yes. Yeah. So that's that's why it's like this goes back. I was so disconnected from some of this at one point, you know, even from like like I've said multiple times, that five dollar t-shirt, you know, who who makes it? Where's it grown? Who's who's got the money that's attached to that five (laughs) dollars when it's made in another country? And so things like that. And I think plastics are the exact same way as you know, or, or sustainability or recycling, you know, really understanding where things are going and the impact that we have one person at a time. So biodegradable, you know, we talked a little bit about like greenwashing and things like that. Talk to me about real, you know, biodegradable and compostable and what, what do those mean? What, what should we as consumers be aware of that isn't being labeled or talked about as much? Yeah. Anytime 
a company calls something biodegradable, that should throw up a major red flag. Biodegradable doesn't have any certifications behind it. There is no specific time frame for being biodegradable. Anything technically is biodegradable because it just means that nothing lasts forever, whether it's glass or steel or plastic. I mean, eventually it'll finally break down into small enough pieces that we can't see and it's broken down. So eventually it will, whether that takes a year, 10 years, a thousand years. Thousand. That's really all it means. Where compostability and composting, there are certain requirements for industrial composting. There's specific requirements for home composting, for different types of material. So a piece of paper has different requirements than a piece of bioplastic. All of that is regulated certified. And that's what you want to look for is those types of certifications that can show, okay, this happened, this was tested, these were the results. When it comes to home composting, there is no test here in North America. It doesn't exist. ASTM and BPI are kind of working on what their standards should be for it, but right now it doesn't exist. The only one that exists is for industrial composting, which those are few and far between. And they're very selective on the type of materials they take, especially bioplastics. So that doesn't really solve the problem. But having something that you can compost in your backyard or in that little compost bin you can put on your counter if you live in an apartment now that you can buy and compost that way. You can throw our materials into those composts and it'll break down in about six to 12 months. It does end up in an industrial facility and you do have access to that. Our testing has shown it's broken down in less than 60 days, which far exceeds the requirement for industrial composting, which is 90% degradation within 180 days. Okay. Okay. So this, uh, this becomes even more important that we pay attention to the trash we're putting in our, our ground, because I've heard over and over again that borders have shut down or quit taking other countries. Some countries have quit taking other countries' trash, right? Where we used to offload waste to other countries for recycling, that we no longer have that opportunity. Now, you know, it's almost that it expedites where that trash is and how it impacts us, right? And so more and more you know, people are looking to take care of their own garbage and make make that impact. Yeah, a couple of years ago, China stopped refusing uh, or stopped taking, I should say, what they call dirty plastic. So any mixed materials, anything that is not cleaned or sorted, they stopped taking that. Started sending it to Indonesia and other parts of the, the world. Come to find out, they don't have the infrastructure to handle their own trash, let alone our trash. And a couple of countries actually shipped it back to the U.S. and Canada because they didn't want to deal with it. So now we're just shipping garbage back and forth between each other for no reason, which is in the on the ocean instead of in. <laughs> oh, great! <laughs> so yeah, I mean it's becoming an even bigger problem because we're still producing all of this material at the same rate and even a higher rate um, than we were a couple of years ago, but we have nowhere to dispose of it. And as we know, recycling of petroleum plastics doesn't work. hasn't worked in 50 years. Recycling facilities are closing all over the country and all over the world because there's no buyer for that end material because the virgin material is that much cheaper. Why, why spend the money? So as this continues to happen and more and more restrictions on petroleum plastic happen, whether it's straws, like we talked about, you know, cutlery, anything else, packaging, food packaging, clamshells, coffee cups, styrofoam, there's going to be more and more restrictions 
across the globe that are going to restrict how much petroleum can be produced, as well as every auto manufacturer I'm aware of has vowed to not produce gasoline combustion engines by 2035. So they're going to have even more restrictions on what they can do with that material and polymers. So I think there's a great opportunity for bioplastics to really take hold and start solving this problem. You're eliminating plastic and all the waste. You're reducing carbon by upwards of 5,000 pounds per ton by switching to a bioplastic. A A lot of benefits just by making that switch. And now it is really affordable to do so. 10 years ago, not so much. But now it's very easy for a company to make a switch over to a sustainable alternative material. That's great. Okay. So carbon, the carbon piece is a huge, I I would love to dive into that a little bit more, but I know that that can be a rabbit hole. So I'll come back to that because I think this is a big impact, but I think it ties directly to price also, right? When we talk about like that, you know, penny more that it's going to cost per utensil in order to switch over. Where is hemp now compared to these petroleum products? And what are we looking at to bridge that gap? Yeah, price can be an issue depending on what type of product you're producing. Like straws, for example, they usually sell for less than a penny if they're petroleum. So it's very, very hard to compete with, especially if you're producing a product that's two or three cents. So pushing the bioplastics towards products that have a higher value will bring in that acceptance, allow us to produce more and more material. And it's economies of scale. The more we can produce, the lower our costs get. So that's really what we want to do is produce on a commercial scale our new hemp bioplastic so that anybody can make that switch. But not all hemp bioplastics are created equal. Just like petroleum plastic, there are thousands of variations, thousands of blends, different types of copolymers. So they're not all treated the same. They don't all break down the same. Some are compostable, some are not. Some are upwards of 80, 90% petroleum plastic. So that education piece is needed as well, too, to really show people, hey, this is what this is actually made out of. This is how you properly dispose of it. And this is where it came from as well, too. So people can actually see what they're buying, where in Europe, they're starting to implement um, requirements like this, where packaging actually has to show you the carbon footprint of that product. So not only does it say this is plastic and you can recycle it here or it's composable, but it tells you what the carbon footprint is. So you can compare two products and go, oh, I'll go with company B because it has a lower carbon footprint. So as more and more of that starts to happen, I think people will start to open their eyes and see, oh, this is really a big problem that we need to fix. And hemp is a fantastic solution to help us get there. Because right now, most of the waste biomass in the hemp industry is just that. It's waste. There is no use for it right now. It's being burned or composted. So like, there is a great opportunity to convert that into concretes, plastics, paper, fabrics, and a whole slew of other items. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so can you talk to the products you just were displaying, right? What we're looking at is cost difference and impact. You know, if you're looking at like the the carbon footprint or what is that offset? You know, I feel like that's the message that especially the younger generations are really looking to put their dollar towards, right? Is what is that carbon footprint? Was it ethically sourced? Who made it? Is it US made? Is it are we shipping it all the way across the world? 
So yeah, I'm kind of curious about that story because of course the business is going to pass that on to the consumer, right? And that that difference has got to be justified. And so I'm curious from you, where are you seeing businesses really say, you know what, yes, this makes complete sense for us? Yeah, and luckily, surprisingly enough, we're talking in pennies in price difference compared to yep. petroleum plastic. So depending on the product and volume, you know, 10 cents in price difference. So it's not really that big of a difference when you look at the grand scheme of things, especially when you're talking about very high value items, things that cost, you know, $50, $100, an extra 25 cents for the consumer. Yes, it's more money, but it's not that big of a change. It's not going to break their pocketbook. You know, if it was a dollar more, they might question it. You know, 25 cents, no, no big deal. So making that switch is a lot easier than it was five, 10 years ago. And we have customers, you know, small mom and pops, just getting started, trying to launch their product can make this switch. We have large MSOs that do hundreds and hundreds of thousands of units and are able to make this switch. So anybody across the board, we have customers that have really dug in and said, we're going to make this change. We're going to do something about all the plastic we're creating and have done so and have seen an increase in their sales as well because they're bringing in new customers they wouldn't have had before because they can show their customer, not only do we grow sustainably or do we, you know, like Fat in the Moon, for example, they do sustainable cosmetics and don't use any chemicals. But they can show their customer all the way through that to the packaging and saying, yes, we are a sustainable company. We are doing the right thing. We are trying to solve this plastic problem by using alternatives like glass and steel and hemp, bamboo, um, anything that is petroleum plastic free. Right, right. Okay, so I want to talk technical for a little bit <laughs> because I think it's beneficial. I, and I know I'm not the only one, I hear all the time that, well, I thought all plastic was the same, right? Um, what are you looking at as far as successes in hemp with hemp plastic versus those that are, you know, we're still, we've still got some kinks to work out and discover and figure out and why? Like, what are some of the technical things that we're addressing? Yeah, I mean, it's still new in its infancy, if you will. Um, I mean, hemp's been around for tens of thousands of years, but using it in this form, especially for plastics, is fairly, fairly new. We weren't technically legal to do so until a couple of years ago, unless you were in a legal cannabis state. So it's still very new in its infancy. Seeing textile companies still bringing in container loads of fabric from China because they can't get their supply here in the U.S. The plastics, the ones that really only exist, now there are PLA. PLA is a polylactic acid. It's not widely accepted for composting, no matter what the feedstock is, because it's acidic, just like lactic acid in your body, large amounts in one area at one time are never a good thing. So it increases the acidity of the compost, and then they can't sell that to the farmers that would normally buy it. The other options are blends, so they'll add you know, hemp herd to it. So we haven't don't have a 100% hemp plastic yet. That's what the new facility is for. We've used plant-based plastics and kind of created a blend and added hemp herd to it. The other one is biocomposites, which are usually about 80% petroleum with other plant-based materials added or plant-based plastics added to it. I think there's a real opportunity for you know, single use if the material is home or backyard compostable. There's also a great use for long-term plastics. The major Luxury car manufacturers like Audi and Porsche, BMW have all been working on hemp and fiber, natural fiber-based plastics for their vehicles. 
whether it goes inside a door panel kind of as a support mechanism or an actual door panel or wing like Porsche did for one of their GT race cars. Ford here in the U.S. is also looking for hemp plastic alternatives. I know Bruce that's always on with you guys and his hemp plastic car uh, created a whole body panel um, out of a hemp-based plastic and kind of a fiber weave design, which is very, very strong. So I think there's a lot of opportunities for hemp just outside of packaging. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Okay, so what about specs for product you need in order to create or or a plastic would need, right? What what are we looking at if a farmer wants to grow and says, hey, I'm really passionate about getting into this vertical or this industry, or a processor is looking to process and get into plastics, you know, providing raw material for plastics? What are those what are those specs? What do we, what do you need to scale? Yeah, for us, for the new facility for, and the new material, we just want the waste. So root to tip, we can use it all. doesn't matter what it is, pre or post extracted. We want it all. We don't want specific crops or strains grown. We just want the waste biomass that nobody else wants. Whether that's hemp derived, cannabis derived, doesn't matter to us. We can use it all. You know, run it over to your truck. I don't care. I'll still use it. We will have equipment at our facility to break it down, grind it, because we know not every farmer has access to decortication and mill to grind it down. So we'll have that on site as well too. But if we can get that pre-processed at a reasonable price, definitely look into that as well too. It has to be below 150 microns, but nothing really specific for us. The cleaner, the better. We don't want dirt and rocks in it by any means, but it doesn't have to be perfectly clean like the fiber industry needs, for example. So we just want the waste, plan on bringing in probably three to 400 tons of waste biomass every single month to meet our production demand at the facility. And we'll continue to grow that in the first facility. And we have plans to produce probably five or six additional facilities across the U.S. where large hemp farms and grows actually exist. You know, Kentucky, Tennessee region, upstate New York is starting to grow a lot. South Dakota just introduced a new hemp plan to grow a lot of hemp and start paying the farmers to grow industrial hemp. So I think there's a lot of opportunity to have multiple facilities. We're not shipping product all over the country for no reason. Yeah, I think that's exactly what we can't. It, it's it's what will stifle, especially when we talk about price, right? Because when I went in, when I, we were talking about plastic bags, a penny is a lot of money when we're talking about millions and millions and millions of plastic <laughs> bags. There's yeah, a difference for organizations. And so being able to you know, really shrink that difference is going to require scale. And so, yeah, I'm really excited about the scale opportunity and the opportunity that the government is putting behind the Climate Smart Commodity Grant. And I'm really anxious to see opportunities evolve, you know, for the industry and for hemp farmers to really start producing so that we do get the input. Like you said, got more more of the waste material and raw material in Colorado. What does scale look like next? Like where would next facility be? We have a couple of locations we're looking at, possibly Texas, possibly you know, okay. Kentucky, Tennessee, state New York, obviously the West Coast, the Oregon, Washington area as well too. Okay. So really where the demand is and where the the states really want this type of manufacturing and processing and really want that kind of industry to get there. Because we want to work with the farmers to pull in their waste, of course, but we also want to work with them so that they can grow specifically for industrial purposes. So have them grow for fiber and we can still use that waste material. 
they can grow for seed and we can still use that waste or grain or whatever they want to grow for outside of you know traditional CBD market and still have an outlet for all of that waste material while having those contracts with the, the fiber industry and the processors that can use the decortication equipment to break it all down so that the farmers can do what they do best and just continuously keep growing and providing better and better products. Speaking of circular economy, right? What are some of those key things? Because that's another word you hear thrown around a lot, right? Talk to me a little bit about how this is all encompassing, especially as you're scaling. I mean, you know, what does that circular economy really look like? Yeah, and that's why we want to use the waste material for our feedstock because there's thousands and thousands of pounds going to waste. Some of it's just rotting in fields, unfortunately. Some of it's sitting in warehouses be used and some of it's just being burned because they have nowhere else to put it unfortunately which obviously releases a lot of carbon into the atmosphere so we want to take all of that material create something that can be used for any type of plastic injection molding production so whether it's packaging clamshells toothbrushes you know hair combs sunglasses any really injection molded plastic we will be able to provide an alternative material for that material can then in turn be composted, whether it's industrial site, your home or backyard compost, that can be sent off to the farmers. They grow more hemp. We use that waste material to create more products, and that cycle continues. There's no waste. Even if somebody were to unfortunately litter it on the side of the road or it ends up in the ocean, eventually it'll break down by itself, usually in a couple months, depending on the environment it's in. And it's all 100% plant-based, so you don't have to worry about it leaching chemicals into its environment as it breaks down or breaking into microplastics and then down into nanoplastics. It's the material we're producing is biocompatible. It's been used in the medical industry for decades. If you've ever had stitches or sutures inside and they break down inside your body, same type of material. Um, so even if you were to eat it, your kids eat it, your dog eat it, no issues whatsoever. And that's really the changer when it comes or the game changer when it comes to bioplastics is providing that type of material that doesn't harm the environment when it breaks down, even though it is plant-based, which PLA can because it's so acidic. And depending on the thickness of the product you produce, the composter won't even accept it. They won't even try to compost it because it takes too long for them to break down. They just end up with chunks of plastic in their compost. So this is why we're really pushing towards this type of polymer and these types of polymers that will allow us to provide that circular economy. And we have a option for our waste as well. It's not a one-to-one -one conversion rate from biomass to bioplastic. Uh, we love to get that air as close as we can at one point, but we would have a waste stream as well, basically plant matter, which then in turn could be turned into biochar, for example, and then added back into the soil and the fields that grow any type of crop. It doesn't necessarily have to be hemp. Kevin said earlier, biochar to the rescue. <laughs> You're exactly right. Biochar, I think, plays a big role in this carbon, you know, carbon concern and big circular economy. It's been pretty awesome. I had a question really quick. And it's funny, I swear you were reading my mind because I was just typing, wondering about your waste material, right? What are some of the concerns you'd said that you could take like post-extracted material? What type of tests or I mean, can you take anything that comes your way or are there some specifications for how clean it needs to be or what's your. Yeah, we can take pretty much anything unless there is some sort of chemical that was added that shouldn't have been added. 
we can take just about anything. Even if it's hot or non-compliant, uh, we can use that material as well uh, because we basically destroy or break down the material to a very, very fine level that gets fed to microbes through the process. They in turn produce the polymer for us and then that gets turned into the little pellets or nurdles then turned into the final product. So for us, it really doesn't matter for the most part. Like I said earlier, we don't want tons of rocks and dirt and stuff like that in there. But for the most part, no, it doesn't really matter if it's been you know, ethanol extracted, CO2 extracted, butane extracted, it doesn't matter to us. I really, will you bring, when you come to Utah for the Utah Can event, are you going to be able to bring some samples? Yeah. Okay, good. <laughs> <laughs> I just made a note and I was like, oh, I really need to get some samples. I still have some tubes that you sent me that I've been sending out, but I still have quite a few of those too. So I'll bring those to the event. Just heads up. You don't need to probably bring more. I do have those, but I'd love to, yeah, pass those out. Those are awesome. (laughs) Okay. Yeah. What about policy? You know, that's a question too, that comes up if a material is, you know, uncompliant or can, like you said, take how can we how can we help these guys to know that you're accepting that type of product so that it's not just burned you know what are the options there yeah depending on the the state's rules and regulations on how to deal with non-compliant or hot products we can then take that um, and use it in our process and create a you know, non-consumable product when we pelletize it we can verify there's no trace cannabinoids in it before it's even turned into a visible product so we've stripped all of that away from the plant. So it doesn't matter if it's hot or non-compliant to us. Uh, we can still use it. Some states, the laws are a little weird, but a little bit difficult. But here in Colorado, that's not an issue for us because of our process for basically destroying the material, which is what's required for hemp. Cannabis side, you're supposed to mix it with 50% something else before you dispose of it to render it useless. We don't need to do either because we're basically destroying it and turning it into a plastic non-consumable product with zero cannabinoids in it. So we can use all of that material well, so they don't have to burn it and just lose all of that. If it's been processed, there's a price for it. You know, they've ground it down, micronized it, dried it. Instead of burning it, there's a value to it. So we would definitely love to help those farmers that run into those issues and be able to use that that waste material as well. Absolutely. Kathy had a great question. I'm not sure if you have an answer to this, but where can we actually access bottles equivalent to Boston rounds to package my oil-based insect repellents? The best option is going to be glass, steel, or aluminum. Right now, the holy grail bioplastics is a water bottle or that bottleneck of a product, which is blown molded, so a different type of production than an injection molding facility. A couple of companies have been working on it, but nobody has produced a commercially viable product at this point. There's some paper companies that are making paper bottles that have a plant-based liner in them that work pretty well, but I haven't seen any here in the U.S. So we're still getting there on the bioplastic side, but if you can, glass is a fantastic option. It's infinitely recyclable. It's inert, so you're not going to have any reactions to your product whatsoever. So that would be a great option if you can find a you know a steel product as well. Maybe a reusable option would be a great solution. So that's what I would say. Okay, so talk to me about this blow molding, right? Because there's a couple of companies I know that are also 
you know, big producers of plastic equipment and materials and holding, you say the holy grail. Talk to me about some of the challenges that the hemp plastic or biocomposites, bioplastics space is having trouble with in penetrating into, you know, substituting some of those products. Yeah, I think right now it's, you know, for one price to availability of material. So for example, if Coca-Cola said, hey, we're going to switch over all of our Coke bottles today. Ten, We want 10 million here in the U.S. for new Coke bottles out of bioplastic. That material doesn't exist anywhere. They cannot buy that material. And like I said, the Holy Grail is producing that bottleneck, you know, using a blown molded injection system to be able to produce that product, which I have not been able to see anyone produce it. There is a company out of California called Cove Bottles, I think is what they changed their name to, or Cove Water. They've been working on it for about five years and still haven't been able to produce a commercially viable product. So I think there's a great opportunity for somebody that could create that new polymer or blend of polymers that will survive that type of process and not just collapse on itself, you know, after sitting on a shelf for a couple of days as well, too. So yeah, we'll get there eventually. I think we're still a little ways out. The bioplastic realm is still, in my opinion, in its infancy worldwide. It produces about 1% of what petroleum does. So we still have a very long, long hill to climb to start placing petroleum on a really large scale. But I think, yes, we'll get there eventually. Some of the first types of bioplastics that existed, very rudimentary, usually had petroleum in there as well, added binders to them. But now we see complete standalone bioplastics and products from cutlery to straws and clamshells. A lot of molded fiber products are starting to come on the market as well, too, from you know banana leaves and sugarcane waste, where they create the clamshells for food packaging out of that material. So yeah, there's a lot of these waste streams that are being used you know, just outside of hemp to create new alternatives to the plastic problem. The bio, bio is what's so important, right? <laughs> Not just yeah. the hemp. Yeah. Why, so why hemp? What, where does hemp really play? You know, when people say like, wh- how, how do you turn hemp into a bioplastic, right? Or a hemp plastic. Can you walk me through that process? What, ha- yeah. what happens to the hemp before it? Yeah, so just like petroleum plastics, different variations and types of hemp plastics that do exist. Our process, for example, you take your waste feedstock, which is hemp. Technically, it could be any sort of plant waste, you know, coffee beans, sugar cane, corn, sugar beets, anything that, you know, has a high cellulose content. We can use that material to produce these types of polymers. Basically, what happens is you take that feedstock, you feed it to microorganisms through a process. They, in turn, create this polymer. You extract that polymer from the microbes and then through another process, basically solidify it into the little pellets or nurdles that can then be used in the injection molding process. So somebody that produces sunglasses now, for example, would be a simple switch over to a different type of material. One benefit we've seen is a lower temperature through the injection molding process, so less energy used as well too. So a little bit of tweaking, same equipment used, just a little bit of tweaking in the processing, and then it spits out your, your final product, which is you know, non-plastic at that point. So it's kind of a rudimentary high-level overview, a little more complicated than that, but yeah, it's 
basically you're processing through microbial fermentation and then the end result is this bioplastic. Okay. 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 See, this is the kind of stuff that I don't understand. So I always have to say, well, I don't really know, but I can connect you to somebody that does. So Cole, if somebody's interested in buying product or getting involved, what is, what does Dama Distributing need and how do people get in touch with you? You know, what are you guys really looking for? Yeah. So you can find us online, domadistributing.com. We're in Aurora, Colorado as well, too. If you want to swing by our warehouse anytime and check out the products firsthand, we're looking for customers in really any space, whether it's, you know, cannabis and hemp, cosmetics, food, really anybody that's looking to make that switch. On the bioplastic facility and production, we're looking for more investors and funding to bring this to a large commercial scale so that these large Fortune 500 companies can make that switch and meet the goals that they've set forth for themselves as well, too. A lot of them want to reduce their plastic consumption or virgin plastic consumption by 50% in the next you know, three to five years. So they have a very large goal, but they're running into the same issue. It's supply. They can't make that switch now because there's not enough material that exists to allow them to do so. So I think there's probably going to be another five to 10 bioplastic facilities built here in the U.S. alone over the next five to 10 years just to meet the demand here in the U.S. So I think there's a great opportunity for investment and sustainable materials to actually solve this plastic pollution problem that we see every single day. Well, and supply chain problem. I mean, look at, take the plastic pollution problem aside from this. If companies are looking to secure supply chain for their clamshells or straws or, you know, any type of material, you know, utensils for the restaurants, it's getting harder and harder to, to depend on international trade, right? And so it is, yep. which is, you know, put a little bit bigger strain on the products that are produced here in the U.S. So we're looking at, you know, longer turnaround times for U.S. made products inflation plus the demand has increased pricing significantly especially when it comes to paper-based products so that's another reason we want to have our own facility as we can produce all of it here in the u.s we use waste that's already being created in the industry provide a economically viable product that makes it an easy transition for these companies to make that switch and help be a part of the solution okay i, I want to talk about a couple of things but you just said economic you know, solution or economic impact. I want to talk about like jobs that this will create for the community and revenue back to the community. When we look at this from a different angle, you know, outside of just hemp, what does, what does Dama Distributing plan to do for the, you know, for the community, communities it's involved in? Always growing and expanding at our facility here in Colorado. Uh, we have like nine employees on staff now here at this facility. The new Bioplastic production facility will have anywhere between 20 and 25 employees right out the gate getting going. As we expand and kind of improve on our design and process, we will add more and more employees that will handle you know, the decortication, the milling, the grinding, the processing, chemists to be able to process the material and make sure all the equipment is running properly. And then Again, multiple facilities across the U.S., so we probably will have five or six as the goal all the way across the U.S. so we can provide jobs for really anybody that's looking to get into this space because sometimes it's not easy to find your path in the cannabis or hemp space. You know, Where do you fit? What do you want to do? Not everybody wants to be a bud tender. 
not everybody can grow cannabis. I can't. I got a black thumb. I'll kill anything. So me too. This guy's only alive because he's new. That's really <laughs> but I yesterday. Okay. <laughs> so yeah, I think there's a great opportunity for those people that want to get into the space but don't necessarily want to be, you know, with CBD or they want to, they don't want to be in the cannabis space. They want to be in something more industrial. They're used to right. working in those types of processes. And the farmers that want to use and grow hemp and be able to use the same equipment that they're currently using to grow corn and make that easy transition to a you know, more viable, I think, sustainable crop that doesn't strip the soil of nutrients like monocropping corn does. Okay, so we talked about scale, right, and the volume that you guys are going to need or that the industry really is going to demand and call for when we talk about you know, getting away from the 1% of bioplastics to say even 10%, right, of, of the bio, of the plastics market. Right now you're using all waste. Eventually will you need to be buying, I assume just on the numbers that you presented and the, the tonnage that you guys process or have the capability to process at one facility, as we scale up, I assume you'll need to, and the acreage of cannabinoids decrease, right? Yeah, what, is, what does that scale look like on the industrial side? Luckily, from what we've seen, based on the acreage growth cycles, both here in Colorado and a few other states we've looked at their data, there's more than enough biomass to handle one facility, possibly even two facilities, regions. I think as cannabis becomes more and more legalized in states across the U.S., more and more material is going to be produced. So I think there will be pretty much an endless supply of this waste material because not only are they growing for, you know, CBD and, you know, cannabis and Delta-8 nonsense, <laughs> but the, the industrial side is starting to grow. You're starting to see more people produce paper, more people produce concretes, more and more people that are trying to get into the fiber side of things and grow specific for that industry. So as the industrial hemp side grows, they'll be producing more and more and more waste as well, too. The fiber industry doesn't need the roots or the seeds or the leaves for their product. So I think there's a, a really great opportunity to grow with the market as long as it's done correctly. We don't want that same issue to happen that happened a couple of years ago with the CBD market and everybody ran into the gold rush and then nobody made any money. We want to make sure these farmers have contracts. We're going to grow 10,000 acres you know, for fiber, but we still want all of your waste. You know, So there's an outlet for that. Or if you just want to use it as a rotational crop and just throw it in there and then you know, play around with it or you have somebody that wants your seed or your grain, great, perfect. We'll still use your waste. You can still grow, you know, corn and soybean and everything else. You know, you don't have to replace everything, but it's a great rotational crop. Uh, that we can still use that material as well. So, yeah, I think as we scale, I don't see being an issue for the next, you know, five years. But we start producing, you know, t maybe 10,000 tons of bioplastic on a monthly basis, then we might look at different ways of bringing in more and more waste from different regions. Luckily, it's legal to ship hemp over state lines. So if we run out of hemp here in, U or in Colorado, we can go to Utah, up into the Dakotas as well. So as long as it's you know, not on the other side of the country, right? Um, I think there's more than enough material available. Interesting. Okay. Yeah, that's, that's good to know. And I guess I hadn't thought about the high THC 
type one or marijuana. I don't know what to call it, <laughs> but yes, because that obviously has a, a major play in the waste market of stock. Uh, yes, and obviously the cannabis market produces and sells a lot more than the hemp and CBD market, so their waste stream is significantly larger. Yeah, yeah, and funny that it's all the same plant, so I would assume it kind of works the same. <laughs> Maybe yeah. quality fiber, but that's great to know that, yeah, this just this just goes to show really where the industry's opportunities are, right, and then what scale looks like. Can you talk a little bit as, you know, you had mentioned Ford is looking for alternative plastics. Can you talk about the, like, what's the why behind as far as the strength or the recyclability of a hemp plastic compared to a polymer? Yeah, so it can be extremely strong. I've even seen reports of it being produced as rebar instead of steel for rebar, just as strong. Same with Car panels, very similar strength to carbon fiber. So it's lighter than steel, but as strong or stronger. So on a vehicle standpoint, if you can produce a product that reduces weight, you reduce fuel usage, you reduce emissions, probably using a better process to produce that final product than you know a solid steel part, which is very energy intensive. Making something out of a plant-based material that doesn't need as much energy as a steel facility would. So there's a benefit there as well, too. Recyclability, that's kind of a long, convoluted, difficult thing to do when it comes to hemp plastics. Technically, there are number seven, which is just the other, which is a catch-all, doesn't matter what it is. If it's not a number one through six, it's a seven. (laughs) Uh, Yes, put it over here. (laughs) The downside is they're all looped together and mixed together, so they don't get recycled, unfortunately, because it's literally just everything else. So all of that is sent to a landfill. So it really depends on what it's made out of. If it's you know 80% petroleum and you've added all of these plant-based alternatives to it, it's probably not going to get recycled either. So producing something that is 100% plant-based and could be composted at the end of life would be the best way to go about it. Has anybody created something like that? I'm not 100% sure when it comes to car parts, concrete. Sure, of course. But yeah, I think that's why these automotive manufacturers are looking for alternatives, you know, saving costs, saving energy, saving weight on vehicles as well, too. Plus, you get that same high impact, high strength resistance you would from steel or carbon fiber without the footprint. Right. I love it. Love it. Love it. Okay. So something maybe we don't talk about very often that needs to be talked about when we're talking about, or when we address the scalability of the industry, can you give some feedback about what you've experienced as you're doing this? And then, yeah, what maybe we need, what are some gaps that we need to be filling in? Yeah. Kind of like the chicken and egg syndrome at this point, everybody wants, material but nobody's producing it and nobody's processing it either when you look at you know levi's and patagonia they want hemp for their fabrics but they're all sold out because they can't get enough supply to produce enough material that happens i think all the way across the board is just hasn't gotten to that commercial scale yet whether it's paper or concrete or plastics wood 
uh, really anything produced from hemp, nothing has gone to a commercial scale other than the consumable products. So I think that's really what needs to change is some sort of collaboration between multiple companies to be able to bring that to a commercial scale. Because doing everything vertically integrated is incredibly expensive, takes a lot of logistics to make it work, where if you can partner with the right companies, you can have somebody that grows for you, somebody that can process the material for you, and then you can convert that into your final product of paper or concrete or plastic. But right now, there's kind of that disconnect. Like, yeah, people want the material, but how do you find somebody that can process it, can decorticate it? can grind it down to the micron level that you need for your specific product. That's also a hard thing to find. Or if you find it, it might not be in your state. So is it worth it to have it shipped you know, several states over? So I think that really is the biggest issue is it's the whole infrastructure on any industrial space right now in hemp just isn't to the level where it needs to be. But if we can work together, I think everyone will benefit greatly. You know, All ships rise with the tide. So if somebody can process it, somebody can grow it, and somebody can convert it into that final product, now you have a whole new industry created, and it's a very easy system to get into versus trying to do everything yourself from top to bottom. Yeah, I absolutely agree. You know, I was going to talk a little bit about the capital, you know, like what is, when there was a comment about the margin to process materials, right? And this is something that comes up to me all the time. People say, I really want to get into this industry and I'm, I want to start here at the farm and then I want to do this piece and this piece. What would that require? What is needed? And you said, you know, being completely vertically integrated is it requires a huge amount of capital up front. What are we looking at as we scale, you know, for that need of capital injection? And again, I'm going to give credit back to, I appreciate that we're starting to see public-private partnerships formed with governments, you know, funds and grants come in to kind of get out of this chicken and egg. But yeah, what's your what's your feedback there? Yeah, it's great to see that as well, too. Here in Colorado, there's a lot of opportunities and grants pushing that direction. The USDA just launched their $1 billion grant for sustainable agriculture and carbon reduction. Department of Energy has grants as well, too. So I think it's really good to see this moving in that direction, but we still need more capital. You know, the, the grants aren't going to pay for everything. They'll help for sure, but they're not going to pay for everything, unfortunately. For example, our facility in totality, we're looking for $30 million, which you know sounds like a lot of money, but for a full-scale commercial production facility, that's nothing. We've seen facilities similar being built for anywhere from 100 to $700 million. So I think that's really what's holding back the industry as well, too, is there's not enough money flowing into the industrial hemp space at this time. We're seeing a lot of money flow into sustainability and carbon capturing and these you know, commercial scale technological carbon capturing versus you know, nature-based carbon capturing and carbon sequestration. So I think as more and more industries and people see the benefit of what this plant can do and the industrial hemp space can do, we'll start to see more and more money flow in that direction. But you have to do it on a commercial scale. It's great if you do small scale testing, you know, get a couple hundred thousand dollars here and there. But a lot of these investors, they don't want to invest less than $10 million. They're doing something on a commercial scale because it's going to be a long time for them to see their money back. If you're doing it on a very small scale. 
You've got to be able to compete with price, right? When we look at the scalability, there's one thing to grow. I had an awesome conversation with a farmer one time and he said, well, I've been growing for, or with a, he's, he's a grower. I've been growing for five or six years. He says, but this year I like scaled and yeah, I'm not a farmer. Like the, that is a very different conversation. Like you said, when you're doing small things to prove prototypes versus bringing to commercial scale to be able to compete with what we know and what's convenient and what infrastructure already exists. And so. Yep. And that's really what needs to happen because the bioplastic production facilities that exist now are more from two to six times what petroleum plastic is because of economies of scale. We're producing 1% of what petroleum does and they produce 700 tons a minute. So (laughs) we have a long ways to go, but kind of a double-edged sword right now. Restrictions on plastic continue to happen, which means they're producing less and less, so their pricing is going up. But for bioplastics, we're producing more and more and more, so our pricing is coming down. So that gap is starting to close. And as it gets closer and closer, it's going to be easier and easier for companies to make that transition. And we're seeing that now. Companies are already making the transition. But when it jumps down to you know two or three cents in price difference, um, there's no reason not to make the switch at that point. Right. Well, and we're starting to see more and more government agencies like Department of Energy and USDA and the states come in and collectively, you know, come together to say, wait, hemp provides a new opportunity for all of these different components that are being hit by one facility or one, you know, yeah, line of production. And so that's really exciting. Congratulations on everything you've done. It's been exciting to watch. It's mm-hmm. been exciting to be a part of it. I want to give you a shout out also to be to a congratulations for winning the pitch event at NOCO. That's pretty thank awesome. You. Yeah, very exciting. Yeah, I want to about that. And then I'll give a shout out. Thank you to our sponsors and we'll sign off. Awesome. Yeah, I'd love to hear about your your pitch event. How, how did it go and what, what was it about? And yeah. Yeah, it was great. Kind of like a Shark Tank style pitch event. There were six companies in total, a little bit of everything across the board. Some services, some products, some consumable, some not. And it was it was great to see all the, the new products and technology being presented across the board. And luckily, we were able to provide a really good presentation and pitch for our bioplastic production facility. And we were awarded the best pitch for that event, which is fantastic to see that you know a lot of emphasis is driving towards the industrial side of the industry and the you know, carbon sequestration and sustainability of what we're doing versus you know creating another CBD tincture. <laughs> exactly. Well, that's I was impressed also. You know the transition over and over again gets more and more and more to the industrial applications at these events, and it just excites me, fuels my fire. We're moving in the right direction for sure. Well, congratulations. I'm very excited to hear that and not surprised. You guys are doing great things. So it's very, very exciting. I'm excited to see you and introduce you to a number of people here in Utah. And so for those that don't know, we are um, helping to host an event Utah can. Other than that, I want to give a shout out to our sponsors for our seed trials and for Global Hemp Association. Without you guys, we couldn't be here. So let's talk hemp, of course, Morris, you're continuing to kill it and crush it to support the industry. So thank you for all that you do. But Prairie Band, Ag, IND Hemp, Almco, and AgriLead all, and then South Bend Industrial Hemp and Formation Ag. But 
South Bend Industrial Hemp, Melissa, is really leading the charge at pulling this together. And so huge shout out to her and then shout out to everybody else that's continued to support us through membership. So Cole, thank you very, very much for everything you're doing. Anything else you want to say before we sign off? No, it's been a great conversation and thanks for having me on. And I look forward to seeing what you guys do and the industrial hemp space continuing to grow. Absolutely. Thank you, sir. Thank you guys very much. We'll see you next time. Thanks, Cole. Thank you.